And for that, I'm going to demand that I'm a 25% owner. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Brian Estes. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm really good, Todd. Thank you for the invite to be on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So Brian is uh, Brian CCIM, CP, CPM, president of the Estes Group, uh, principal member of Estes Manning uh, Management Group. Um, Brian started the commercial real estate company after 10 years in the commercial real estate uh, or having experience in commercial real estate as a staff appraiser, associate broker, uh, and so on. So um, currently, Astis uh, organizations manage over 1.5 million square feet of commercial space, also you know, over uh, 1,400 residential uh, units. And so uh, quite a bit of experience also, um, you know, represent clients and selling and, and buying and purchasing. So uh, I want to dive in though, because I think it's more fun when you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're doing today. So why don't you why don't you do that? Dive in, um, you know, start us from wherever you want to want to start in the journey. Sure. Well, thanks a lot, Todd. Yeah, I, <clears throat> my, uh, how I got started in real estate is my father kind of dabbled in uh, rental properties, and so when I grew up, I, you know, he used me a lot to paint houses and to do a lot of things. I made great money. I can't complain. And, uh, when I went to college and, and he said, are you going to major in real estate? I said, no, I think, I think I'll go the accounting route. So I majored in accounting and did that for a few years and, and, uh, realized I was not really cut out for corporate life. And, uh, so, um, I went back to, to, to my roots and, and started, uh, buying investment houses, just very, very low end investment houses, did all the work myself and, and then by the time I was, you know, I guess 30 years old, I'd owned about 78 rental houses and um, just got tired of it. You know, probably like everybody, it was just, and, and I had flipped at that point, probably another three, 400 homes. And you got to remember that was back in the nineties when most people didn't really know about flipping houses. I had was, I guess the advantage I had is I had kind of an early peek at what people were doing. And my father introduced me to some people that were already doing that. And I found flipping houses that was a lot more uh, fun and intriguing than than buying rentals, and so. Uh, but once again, there wasn't a lot of information. You kind of yeah, had no to know Yeah, yeah, there was none of that. I mean, it was <laughs> it was you 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 were lucky enough to find someone who kind of told you how to do it, and so. But by the time I was thirty, I I had had enough, and um, of the residential side, I also was hired and brought on to become a, a, a commercial real estate appraiser. And so, after I started really learning the commercial uh, uh, valuation market, I realized, well, you know what? I'm going to start selling off my residential and converting this to commercial. At least I'll have a little bit more stability, and and I won't have to be chasing rent again. There's nothing wrong with the residential side. I still wish, to be honest with you. Today, I still wish I had some of those residential properties, but yeah. I did sell off uh, a lot of my houses, converted that equity into buying shopping centers and office buildings, and uh, did on a self-storage. I started buying multifamily, uh, you know, 20 to 50 units. 
And um, uh, so, and, and again, you know, I had a lot of help as, as being a commercial appraiser, you know, really helped me gauge the market. I had access to a lot of comps, a lot of data. You know, once again, it was back in a time where comps and data were very hard to get. They're still kind of hard to get today, but back then they were extremely hard. And working for a pretty large uh, appraisal firm uh, allowed me access to a lot of data and I took advantage of it. Uh, you know, like everybody else, you know, I always tell people in real estate, you know, you, you, I, I compare it to sailing, right? You never, you know, if you want to go to this point to this point, it's never going to be in a straight line. You're always going to zigzag. And so when I tell people, yeah, I've been in commercial real estate for 25 years, I've never done it the same way more than about seven or eight years at a time. But, but after I was a commercial appraiser for about 10 years, I had accumulated, a decent amount of assets. And I just decided to give the appraisal uh, career up because uh, I was spending more time dealing with my own properties than, than doing appraisal work. And so uh, that led me to, I hired a property manager and a leasing agent. And before you know it, I was helping other people buy and sell their investment properties, big shopping centers, big office towers. And, and, and then people kept asking me, well, you're already managing your own assets. Why don't you just manage some of mine? And then that led into third-party management. And before you know it, I had a full-on third-party property management and brokerage company. And I never really intended to be that. I, I really just intended to keep buying and selling my own assets. And, and but I realized, you know, I was making $100,000 selling and buying other people's property. And I thought, man, this is pretty good money. I don't even have to put my name or go to the bank, borrow any money. And anyway, it, it it's, uh, so I still do a lot of work for myself and I still buy assets and sell assets for myself, but, but we, we did take on much, uh, much more of a third party brokers and third party management company. So that's really honestly as hot as the market's been over the last couple of years. That's primarily what I focused on because as an investor, I'm much, I'm much more of a value added investor. I like buying things that are broken and fixing them, whether it be, you know, occupancy issues, expense issues, capital improvement issues. And um, there's just been very little of it. The pricing has been such that uh, that I just couldn't see enough return. And so we've been focusing much more on the third party brokerage world and the management. Uh, but I think that's changing. And yeah. what I've really been doing over the last six to 12 months is aligning myself with some very uh, cash heavy uh partners, investors, that when the timing is right, we'll be able to bring our money to the table along with theirs and start hopefully buying assets that are having problems and been doing some private money lending. I wanted to put my equity to work rather than just leaving cash sitting on the sidelines. So uh, I have been doing some private money lending to uh, some flippers and some guys that were building short-term rentals in the Florida panhandle. And so I've had a lot of money uh, cycling through down there. But all that has stopped and all my money has been returned at this point because even that short-term rental market in the Panhandle of Florida has come to a halt with uh, with construction pricing and interest rates. And right. So, so right now I'm sitting on money waiting for deals, probably like a lot of other people. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a decent amount of that. And there's a lot of uh, people that wish they had money uh, right now to be able to buy potential deals that are coming. You've been in the market a long time. You were you, when was the first property you bought? What 
what uh, 96 96 okay so you missed the you missed the early 90s kind of i did market uh you know downturn but you you've seen the market go up you obviously were went through the the mid-2000s where you saw the market tumble i mean completely mm. implode uh, and now you're thinking, Hey, there's going to be some opportunities. Uh, what makes you, what makes you think that there's opportunities now we've seen an amazing run up, uh, you know, you've missed out on probably a lot of, a lot of equity build by not buying these last couple of years, but you also potentially missed out on some, and dodged some bullets that might be coming. So what makes you think that, Hey, this might be some opportunity coming up. Yeah. Well, and you, and you hit the nail on the head. I, I have missed some run up uh, over the last three years because I had contemplated the market really turning down in late 2019. I really felt like we were getting ready. And then of course, when COVID happened, you know, it, 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 of course, you know, I think everybody was, I mean, it was certainly a black swan event. So I don't think anybody could have predicted that, but you know, with all the free money that everybody got, you know, that created this run-up that we've had just in the last two to three years. But one of the things that I've noticed, uh, you know, being in real estate as, as long as I have, is that everything cycles through. And the people who get hurt the worst when the cycle's down are the people who bought within 24 months of, of the cycle turning down. Mm -hmm. And what happened to me in 2008 and nine is what's going to happen to a lot of other people you're going to have what I call dead equity and dead equity is when you're stuck in a project. You don't, you have enough equity not to, not to have the banks breathing down your neck, but you don't have enough equity to access it either. And you're not cash flowing. So you're kind of stuck. And that's kind of what happened to me in 2008. I had good projects, decent projects. They weren't cash flowing because we had occupancy issues. We had, you know, expense issues, you know, yep. people were going out of bed. I mean, I had, yep. I used to tell people at one time I had, I think nine mortgage brokerage companies in all of my assets. And, and in one year, seven of those, no, eight of those nine went out of business. Yeah. And so now you're and losing. I, all those but guess what? I, I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, in the banks and I had, believe it or not, I had a lot of liquidity in 2008 and nine and a lot of it was because all the money I had made in six, seven, and and I don't, I say I don't spend a lot of money. I, it's, it's all relative, but, but what happened to me is every time I had a note that came due, the banks wanted me to buy my note down 10% principal reduction. So if I had a million dollar loan come due, they want a hundred grand. And then my next loan came due nine months later, they want, you know, $50,000. And before you know it, my liquidity was just going down, down and down and down. And some people can say, well, that was great. You know, you, you, you had money and, you, and the banks didn't foreclose on you and they worked with you and all this kind of stuff. But I didn't have a lot of money to go take advantage of real estate projects that are being bought at 50 cents on a dollar. And, and I think that's going to happen to a lot of people over these next two or three years, they're going to be, they're going to look on their balance sheet and they're going to say, Oh my God, I'm worth $10 million or $15 million or whatever it is. But when this real estate market turns on them, they're going to realize that that's all they have is a nice balance sheet. They don't have any real liquidity to go take advantage of the market. Dead equity again is what I call it. So yeah. um, 
good points. I mean, um, it, obviously cash is king. And right now a lot of people are going, well, I don't want cash because, because inflation is, is roaring. Yeah. Or is there anything you're, what are you placing your cash in that's still liquid? But, um, Man, I mean, obviously well, banks right now you're nervous about too. So <laughs> well, I, well, I get it. Yeah, you know, and it's look. I got my bank statement last month, and and I mean, I literally had to do a double take on the amount of interest I earned because I mean, it was it was so funny. It was like I, I mean, even my controller said this is the first time I think I've actually booked interest. <laughs> yeah, right. On your money market accounts. I mean, I'm not sure I've done that, and you know, and and uh, any significant way, it, it caught him off guard as well, and so. But I was putting my money, I was doing private money lending for the last year or two as a way to keep my cash active, sure. but also keep it short in a short-term play because I was first lien holder and all my loans were six six months to a year due. Were you doing that? Like I was making anywhere from nine to 11%. So I felt like, I mean, man, that's a short-term play, good interest. But right now I'm sitting on cash a lot of cash and it's not in play, but how I, what I tell myself is what I'm missing right now or what I'm, what's getting me on inflation right now. I'm going to make up for it when that money is finally put in play. If that money starts making 30% returns uh, annually over a five-year period, because I'm picking up real estate in the next couple of years, then I'll more than make up for what I'm losing, having cash on an inflationary market. Yeah, and obviously, depending on on where the market goes, what the opportunity looks like, I mean, that thirty percent could be could be fifty, could be a hundred percent. I mean, you, yeah, you know, absolutely. You, you, you look back at two thousand eight, and and obviously, you said you didn't have a lot of capital to buy, which bummer, right? Because oh, man, yeah. there was some great deals. That's when I started oh, to geez. buy, yeah. and it was amazing. And, and I was just a small little fish, and I wish that that. that you know, you look back and you're like, man, I wish I had a, a million or a couple million or five million, you know, to buy back then because it would have been a different oh, story. But I mean, it was a gold mine. I mean, I watched was. clients. I literally watched clients of mine who did survive and had plenty of cash. I mean, literally pick up properties for, for a third of what someone bought it for just previously. Yeah. It, it was unbelievable. Yeah. And you know, making a $40,000 commission was certainly great. But when I looked at what they were making, and most of the time I found the deals. And, you know, um, and what I'll have this time going around is, number one, and, I, and as part of my fund, I'm going to offer rescue capital to people because I still think there's a lot of money to be made for people who don't who have a great project, they just don't have a lot of liquidity. They don't have, they got, they need to recapitalize their, their bank, uh, uh, you know, their, their bank uh, uh, balance and, but also would get a very experienced partner, uh, an operations partner too. And I think there'll be a lot of people out there. I think that there's a lot of investors. Tell me a little bit more about what that looks like. Cause I think that's a, that's a term we're going to use quite a bit moving forward. You know, nobody really thought about it up until just now. I've been starting to talk a little bit about it too. Tell mm -hmm. me about what that looks like. Rescue capital, like give me a scenario. Sure. Well, let's just say, let's take multifamily. Let's, let, you know, I, I think I would, I would venture to say more than 50 to 70% of the multifamily buyers that have bought in the last five years probably have never seen a down market. They've only seen cap rate compression. They've only seen the good side rental increases. 
I mean, there's the other side of this coin and the other side of this coin is about, I believe is about to come to fruition and that is decreasing rental rates, uh, increasing vacancies, uh, the need to recapitalize the project and, and what happens to projects when they start getting short on cash is, is you start, you stop spending money on capital improvements. You start cannibalizing vacant units. And so in other words, for you to be able to rent these five units, you need stoves. You, you know, this stove is down, this AC is down. We'll just take it from these other units that are in much worse condition. And man, I used to see apartment complexes that would have five to 10% of what I call cannibalized units in their, in their, uh, on the rent roll. In other words, that they just, when they need something because they're short on cash, they just take it from another vacant unit. And that, that just starts the trend. And the trend is, is yeah, guess what? The roof needs to be replaced. Well, instead of replacing it, you just patch it, you know, and throw the blue tarp on top of it. Exactly. And so, <laughs> What's going to wind up happening over a two or three year period of doing that, you're going to back your, you know, these owners are going to back themselves in the corner and realize, you know what, I actually have a viable property, but we don't have any money. We don't have a lot of cash, but if we had it, we could replace the roof. We could get these down units up and operational. And guess what? The bank, they want to go to the bank. And the bank's like, no, I mean, you're, you're, you kind of were over leveraged from day one, right? I mean, you bought at the top of the market and now there's a revaluation and, and, and so there's just a lot, I think they're stuck, you know, whereas somebody like myself could come in and say, all right, I'm going to recapitalize this property. I'm going to buy your note down to where it's, it's a reasonable debt level. I'm going to put in money so we can, we can replace the roof. We can get these units that are not operational back up in operation. And for that, I'm going to demand that I'm a 25% owner, but what you're going to do is you're going to be able to recapitalize this project and start cash flowing again. And so not only would someone be able to get equity from me, they would be able to get an operating partner who, who understands operation, who understands how to turn a property around. And let's face it, most of what people have had to do over the last five, six, seven years, were not really turning properties around. It's just, it was an up market, you know, values were increasing right. automatically and rates were increasing. And that's just a much different environment than what people are going to see, I believe, going forward over the next two or three or four years. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see what will happen. Uh, but I think that rescue capital, if, if, if things do go the way you're talking about going, uh, that rescue capital could be a really big thing, a, a big market, quite frankly. Um, to get people out of that sticky situation. The banks don't want to take these properties back. Mm -hmm. People don't want to lose their properties. You know, they got investors capital and all kinds of stuff. And so if new capital can come in, inject, make this a successful property, as the market starts to lift again, um, everybody wins. And uh, obviously the rescue capital is going to want some, some equity. Sure. They're going to want some sure. profit. That's just how it is. But everybody in that situation wins, so that's it's uh, going to be interesting what happens there. I want to go back to kind of, you know, when you told your story at the beginning, uh, you've done a lot of different things. You've done shopping centers, you've done office, you've done some self storage, you've done multi, uh, you've done a lot of different things. Um, what's your favorite? Like, and and why? Or maybe you don't have a favorite, but what what's something you really like today? Maybe. Well, I really like shopping centers. I think that's kind of what I've always gravitated to retail. You know, uh, 
that seems to have always been the most fun in, in environment. The, you know, I love strip retail. I think there's probably not, there's no better investment than a, than a, you know, 10, 15,000 square foot strip retail on a good corridor. It just seems like there's always in demand. Um, you know, the larger retail projects that I used to enjoy, um, uh, some of those I've owned, some of them we managed or, or we've, we've partnered with another developer, a lot much larger developer. Those have gotten so dang risky. You know, if you've got large floor plates and, and some tenant wants to downsize, I mean, the, the cost to demise space and split it up and all that is just unbelievably expensive. And so I like the smaller retail and you're um, saying that big, uh, like, was box a, junior box yeah, yeah. yeah well big yeah, box things. store and then yeah. they go hey we're out yeah or or we need half this space and if you want to keep us then you're gonna demise the space and we'll sign a 10-year lease and that all sounds great till you realize that that to cut the space in half is gonna cost you know a hundred dollars a square i mean it's, it's it's unbelievably expensive to cut a space in half you don't just put up a wall you got to separate utilities you got to separate electrical you got to i mean it's just usually the restrooms don't fall in the right spot and you got to change that i mean it's just unbelievably expensive and and you know uh and same thing with office i used to enjoy office in my early age because there was so much money to be made doing it right but man, you know, now every time a tenant leaves and a new tenant comes in and they want some tenant improvement, uh, I mean, man, you can, I mean, I've watched office owners, including myself, you know, you'll pay down your note five years and you'll think, man, I'm I'm getting some equity in here. And then you'll have a new tenant move in. You got to go to the bank, and go borrow $200,000 to go put money into the tenant space to get you a lead. And it seems like you're always two steps forward, one step back with office. And, yeah. Uh, that I I've not owned real office, but that's, what's made me nervous. I've analyzed several office deals and I look at that and I go, man, nobody's taking into account these tenant improvements that are going to come up. And what happens when this, this uh, tenant leaves and I got to spend a bunch of money, man, where am I going to get that cash flow? You know, where <laughs> am I going to get that from? So, yeah, I, and yeah. I love, I, I agree. I love uh, shopping centers. We recently purchased a shopping center, a uh, hundred thousand square foot strip. And it, it, it's, it is fantastic. Like you said, high demand areas are very attractive. This is a very high demand area mm. and it's just, it's just unreal. The, how much demand for people to come in and, and put their, their storefronts or, you know, we've got, we've got some businesses that are more, uh, you know, uh, like a golf simulator and stuff like that. And it's just like, man, the, the demand is so high. It, it's, it is. it's fantastic. It's... And I, you know, what, what's your thought you, you hear? Oh, I think there's a lot of fear around retail because of Amazon, because of, mm -hmm. you know, just, just e-commerce. Right. And then that's a reality. There's e-commerce, right? It's not, it's not going away. <laughs> it's, this is not fat. That's right. uh, so, so what's your thought around that? Is retail in danger or not? I, I, well, I say yes and no, and it's not because I can't make my mind up, but I mean, if, if you're <laughs> the reason why I like small shopping centers and smaller floor plates is because those are the necessity based uh, yes. retailers, you know, nail salons, uh, like you say, golf simulators, uh, 
I mean, uh, hair salons, nail salons, uh, state farm agents, and I, I mean, you, you name it. I mean, it, it's kind of a quasi small office retailers where everything's necessity based restaurants and, and yeah, restaurants are a little bit risky right now, but, um, in general, but point is, is that those are the kind of retail users that are a lot less affected by, uh, by, by e-commerce. Yeah. Now, when you start, that's why I mentioned the big boxes and the junior boxes, you know, when you start getting into what they call community and, and uh, regional shopping centers, you know, uh, that's where you start getting into more fashion retail, uh, specialty retail. And, and those are the things that are affected by e-commerce, greatly affected by e-commerce. I mean, so yeah, those are the kind of shopping centers that, you know, what we used to call the power center, you know, those were the ones where you've got Target as an anchor and books a million and, and you got a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, specialty uh retail and fashion retail and all that kind of stuff. Well, those those guys are fighting you know the, those retailers are fighting e-commerce pretty hard i mean look at what's happening to these bookstores you know i had a, a really big time retail developer that's in our local market one time i mean he said this 10 years ago and and it was you know it's Seems like it's pretty common knowledge today, but 10 years ago when he said it, it was just brilliant. And, and you know, because he was ahead of it, but bookstores are just becoming like libraries now. You go up there, you go, you order your Starbucks, right? Your $6 coffee. And, and then you go and you pick a book out and you read, you know, a third of it. And then you put it back and you come back next week, do the same thing, you know, or if you decide you like the book, you go home and you order it on Amazon and, so these poor bookstores, you know, I mean, they're just becoming, and of course, you know, our books a million locally books a million is shutting down. And so the only bookstore I think we'll even have in our market here will be Barnes and Noble. So again, uh, those are the kind of retailers that you're right. Will they be in existence in five years and 10 years? And if we're struggling with that, think about all the lenders and bankers and who are having to make loans on these. I mean, they're, they're struggling with this too. You know, yeah, this, this bookstore, this special retailer has got seven years left on the lease, uh, uh, you know, in their lease term, but will they even be, will they even be in existence in seven years? And so. Yeah, what good, what good is a seven year lease if they're not going to be around? Exactly. And so when people tell me that, why do you buy retail? Because retail's in trouble. And I was like, well, <laughs> You know, you can't stroke, you can't broad stroke retail in one one setting. I mean, I, I bifurcate retail into two different things. One is what I call neighborhood retail, and the and the rest is more, like I said, community, regional, and and I think neighborhood retail. There's nothing wrong with neighborhood retail. Yes, are you going to have some retailers that come in and out? Well, certainly, but there's always demand for that. And I can always backfill those spaces with another uh, necessity-based retailer. So, and so, yeah, so I'm not scared of that kind of retail at all. And these, these special, you know, these, these, you know, uh, small neighborhood centers are usually, like you're saying, on a busy corridor in a nice neighborhood, you know, community area where there's a ton of traffic, a ton of rooftops. And, and I just always think that there's demand for those spaces. Yeah, you got to think what what are you buying and what can the purpose be and if you can put in or there currently is a lot of of that stuff that you can't you can't just go to online and go buy you know you can't go buy 
food at the what certainly you can go grocery shopping but you can't have the restaurant experience right yeah the you know we have uh it's called x golf they just put it they just put a a place in our retail you can't go online and play virtual golf like you can't do that you can play Mm -hmm. video games but that's a little different than swinging the club right You, you we have an appliance store in there certainly can you buy appliances online yeah do most people no, you're yeah. going to go, you want to look at the appliance, you're going to pick it up. Somebody's going to deliver it to your house. Most people aren't buying those online liquor stores, same thing, you know? So it's yeah. like, you got to look at, can you fill it with those things that aren't replaceable, right? It, yeah. you know, people want that experience. So I'll know I, I like that. Um, how do you keep it all? Hey, keep it all straight. Let's talk about the business side. Like you got a lot going on. You got a lot of things happening here simultaneously. You're managing yeah. properties, third party. You got your own properties. Uh, you're you're selling properties. You're, you got a lot of stuff going on. You got a lot of irons in the fire. How are you managing all this? Talk about the team and, and what it looks like. Well, it, it all, even my properties run through my management companies, uh, specifically Estes Group, because I don't own any multifamily at this point um, uh, anymore. And But all my commercial projects run through the management companies. So, you know, we, we treat my properties just like we do anybody else's third-party projects. So I have a property manager. We have property assistants. We have maintenance personnel. I have a good, very good uh, uh executive assistant that kind of keeps me on track. Um, I've got some good team members on the brokerage side. I have a, I have a brokerage team where, you know, I'm kind of the, won't say a figurehead because I do a lot more than just be the right pretty face, but, um, but yeah, so I have some good team members, but you're right. And that was one of the things I had to learn, you know, years and years ago that, you know, if I want to have my hands in a lot of things, I've got to build really good teams behind me to get it done where I'm not having to walk in this office every day and, and handle every minutia detail to, to have something done. And so that's a, a big part of it. And like I said, at Estes Manning, like I said, we manage about 1400 apartment units and I have a very good partner who runs that company day to day. And I get involved on some uh, high level personnel issues or hiring but most of what I do is is client kind of client relations and you know strategic vision and those sort of things. And so, um, so yeah, good partners, good team members, uh, good uh, executive assistant. You know, and and but you're right, it, it's a lot of balls in the air, and sometimes, uh, like everybody else, I can certainly feel overwhelmed. So, yeah, um, are you are you hiring? Do you have uh, do you have virtual assistants as well? I have uh, done some things through Upwork. I have kind of resisted. Uh, to answer your question, yes, I have had some virtual assistants in the past that has worked well for very specific things. But I'll just be honest with you. I, I like I like having my assistant, you know, in my office where if I need something done, I can just get, you know, I can walk down the hall and, and get it done. So I have used Upwork in some other um, uh you know, virtual, uh, uh, I guess, outsourcing of, of certain projects. And that works very well, especially if we have special projects that I think would take some of my team members away too much from what they're doing day to day. We'll, we'll send it through Upwork or some other things, but yeah, I've used virtual, but it's very specific to certain projects. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, let's shift gears. What's a mistake that you've made and, uh, how can you, how, how can you, 
you know, teach something to our listeners? Uh, mistake, mistake. Well, I made a lot of mistakes on the hiring side of things. I know not everybody on this call probably has employees or hires, but uh, not hiring fast enough, number one, and not firing fast enough would, would probably be a big part. Uh, not hiring the right people um, is a big mistake I've made. Uh, in other words, you know, you want to hire people and you think they're going to do good, but you got to hire people who are hungry. Real estate, I don't care how smart you are, real estate's for doers. I mean, this this industry is made for people that didn't necessarily make straight A's in school, and mm -hmm. uh, but they love doing something. I, I was never accused of being the smartest guy in school. But dang it, when I wanted to do something, I just went out there and did it. And and so when I hire people, I, I like to bring people that have desire and hunger. And I'll, that trumps to me what they made on their GPA any single day. Yes. Um, but, uh, but I'll tell you this, in the real estate investment world, some of the mistakes I've made is not, not researching markets enough to where I can make quicker decisions. Because good to great opportunities don't last very long in the real estate market. So if you're not prepared to pull the trigger fast, if you're not prepared to recognize a great deal, then you're going to miss it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and it's and if you think you've got a great deal, but you haven't looked at the market, don't be stupid and buy it. Because if that even the greatest looking deal can be a horrible deal. If you buy it in the wrong location, the wrong submarket, whatever it might be, that can be a horrible deal, even though it looks so good on paper, yeah. so good on paper. We can, anything can look amazing on, on a sheet of paper, but yeah, I, I think that's so important. You understand how you are going to do the research, uh, research, the markets, if you got to have a team to do it, you know, if you're, if you're big enough, you know, have a team that does that. But yeah, you have to be able to research and you have to be able to dive in quick and you have to get the, I think, doing it prior to, um, you know, these opportunities even coming about. You know, once you see the opportunity, if it's a great deal, it's probably gone if you haven't done the research already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They don't last long. Really great no. deals just don't last long. And so if you don't understand the market or you don't, you're not, you don't understand the market enough to recognize it's a great deal that someone else is going to pick well, it up. And that's, that's another good point. You know, if you, if you mm -hmm. don't even, you don't know the market enough, you won't recognize a lot of times mm -hmm. what a great deal is. Yeah. Um, I can think back when I was, you know, younger buying properties and I'm sitting here avoiding some of these properties that were more expensive because they were in a different sub market. But looking back, I'm like, man, that was a fantastic deal in that submarket, even though it would have cost me, you know, three times what I, the, the other property that I ended up buying, that submarket was so much better that it would have made me way more yeah. money. You know? Well, and, 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 and since we were talking about, you know, small shopping centers, yeah, I, I passed on two really good shopping centers about 10 years. Well, this was before 2008. So this is good Lord, that's 13, 14 years ago, but it was in a good market. And I look back now and thought, man, the cap rate was way too aggressive and there's no way. You know, mm -hmm. I think the rents are probably double where they were 
you know, uh, and, and I, I mean, I look back now and realize, you know, I, I because back then I was buying nothing but value, right? I, I wanted a shopping center that I could fix up and retint it and and split the spaces out. And then, I, but if I'd bought those, you know, and put my money there, I would have, I would have already tripled my money in, in so long. And, and it would be a generational because that market is still going up. Even in a downturn, that market will still be good. But you're right. You know, you, you some, there's just sometimes the market can work to your favor. And again, a lot of people listening to this, this podcast who's best in multifamily has realized the market has really worked for you the last five years, right? You just bought a property and cap rates are compressing and rental rates are going up. And, and even though that could turn, I'm just saying that, that, that everybody here understands how the market, when it works to your favor, you don't even have to do anything. It's, so yeah, I've had to work a lot harder for very similar returns than I would have gotten just buying those, maybe even slightly overpaying for those great retail properties. Yeah. Because right now I wouldn't have had to do anything to to have double digit returns every single year. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Love, love it. Thanks for sharing that, yeah. um, Brian. What's a favorite book you could pass down to our listeners? Ooh, uh, the one thing by Gary Keller I thought was fantastic. Uh, you know, I'm not going to mention uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad because I think everybody mentions that book, but I, I don't. That would obviously be on my top my top list, but. The one thing uh, helped me a lot uh, because I think at the time that I read the book, man, I like you just talked about earlier, I had a lot of balls in the air and I, and that book really helped me to realize that, you know, I need to wake up every day. And my one thing is looking for opportunities, whether it be brokerage, you, you say that I have a lot of hands and a lot of, and I do, but the one common thing that I do for all the entities and all the things that I do is I'm, I'm, I'm the opportunity guy. I look for opportunities. Is that opportunity something to invest in or be a broker in or send it to my management company or whatever? So I like going out, doing client acquisitions, big big business development kind of stuff and, and just looking for opportunities. That's kind of my one thing. And so that book is always memorable to me because it there's just certain books that hit you at the right time. And, and that one... And then another one with Gary Keller that I thought was great was the millionaire uh, real estate investor. Thought that was a good book too, you know. And I, I like Gary's writing style, and uh, it just seemed like it, just the way he does it appeals to me. So, so I tend to like his stuff. So love it, love it. Lo the one thing is fantastic. I've not read the other one, but have to put that on my uh, to do list there. Um, last question: What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Wow. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say real estate, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that, and I don't know how many Go Bunnets people on the, you've had on this call, but Go Bunnets is a mastermind that I'm a part of. And you can, of course, anybody listening can go to Go Bunnets. I think it's gobunnets.org. I'm not sure. It's, uh, but um, it's a, it's a mastermind group and there's certainly a lot of uh, uh, people are in real estate in that mastermind, but um, passive real estate. And the reason why I brought that up is that we, we kind of, we, there's, there's two kinds of income. There's, there's uh, what we call horizontal income and vertical income and vertical income is the income that you receive from working day to day, right? It could be a job. It could be a lot of things. Horizontal income would be more, more, commonly referred to as passive income. So obviously 
passive income is great on wealth creation. And everybody talks about passive income. And, and there's no doubt once you become financially free is when you have enough passive income to meet all of your, your needs. But I tell people, especially the ones in their 30s and their 40s, and because I'm 53, and, and of course, I'm still young compared to a lot of people in this business. But don't forget that you can build a lot of wealth with your vertical income, with your active income, too. And people ask me all the time, man, you just must have snowballed your, your wealth and all this kind of stuff using your passive income. I said, that's actually not true. I mean, I was making, uh, how I invested in real estate was I was making dang good vertical income, very good active income. So I, I don't want that to just go unnoticed that, you know, how you can really acquire real estate is figure out how you can make, you know, more active income, how you can pay your expenses and still have a lot of money left over to invest, because that's going to make a huge impact in a long period of time. If you can go 10 years and you've got an extra 50,000, 75,000 or 100 or more to invest every single year, then that will snowball on itself. So, uh, yeah. So, all right. So we got real estate, we got yeah, your vertical business. That, it, it, I would say your business. I mean, you know, don't forget, I guess that's how I got on the vertical income. I mean, businesses are a great way to to uh, to build wealth. And eventually you can step out of the business or sell a business or whatever. It doesn't have to just be real estate. And it doesn't even have to be a real estate business. Yeah. So it, it can just be a you know, business you can get someone to run where you make passive income. You got to give me three yeah. pillars. Yeah, golly. Um <laughs> and you, you stuck me on this one. That was you good stuff, though. Really... That's still stuff, to be honest with you. Give me an I... example, because maybe I'm, I'm <laughs> are you talking about, uh, you're not talking about how to become financially hey, free. Hey, you're... Whatever you think. I mean, it's a yeah. pillar, right? So, so, Well, freedom, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm at the point in my career where freedom means wealth to me. Yeah. Uh, there you because, go. Because, love it. like you just said, I'm in a lot of stuff, and, and, my kids are at the age I have boys that are in college right now. I've got one that's about to enter high school. And so I feel like my wife and I are about to enter the the point in our lives where we're going to be able to do more things where the kids are a little bit more self-sufficient. So in my world right now, I don't care how much wealth I have or how much money I make or whatever, until I get freedom for my wife and I to do the things that we want to do, then I, I don't feel like I'll be wealthy enough. And I know that that probably not uh, doesn't sit well with some people, but yeah, I, I feel like right now, one of the most important things for me is freedom. So until I get that, I don't think I feel like I've reached any real significant wealth in my life until I get my freedom. So I'm holding you to this. This is two now. Yeah. Okay. Freedom right. was great. Real, <laughs> business or real estate was fantastic. So we gotta have one more. Oh, I gotta have one more. Boy, you you putting. Yeah. I should have had an extra cup of coffee. No, you gotta uh, be ready. Uh, <laughs> I'll say this: give back. Yeah, no, give back. I, I, I think uh, giving back does that mean mentoring some people? Uh, I do uh, prison ministry work through our church, mm -hmm. and um, I I don't do enough of it. I've, uh, there are several mission trips I wish I had taken in the past that I still can take. That kind of almost goes back to my freedom. But I, I do, you know, I wish, you know, at some point in my life, I guess I'll slow down enough to where I really think about giving back either to this industry, you know, or or through some nonprofits or through, you know, religion, you know, no matter what religious sector people are from. I, 
I think almost everybody's religion has some form of of giving and, and giving back. And so, yeah, I, I think that 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 is a sign of not just wealth, but that's a sign of appreciation for what you've been able to accomplish in your life. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and giving adds in a selfish way, just adds so much value to your life. You think about every time you've reached out and given to somebody, whether it's financially, whether it's like you said, just mentoring, uh, helping somebody out, you feel so good afterwards, don't you? I mean, it just, it just brightens yeah. your day. You want, you want to feed yourself, um, some, some, you know, happiness. You want to feed yourself some love. You want to feed yourself some appreciation. Just go help somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's going to make your day. You know, you're, and feeling, I tell you're people, feeling depressed, just go help somebody. Yeah, you're right. And I tell people all the time, and I think real estate people, and probably most people listening to your podcast are probably real estate people. And we, you know, I've been doing this for what, 28 years now. And we've been burned by so many people and, and we've all owned, you know, multifamily or housing and all that kind of stuff. And so, and I feel like sometimes when you're in real estate, you get a very jaded view of people yeah. where maybe someone who's been an accountant their whole life or, or whatever, it doesn't see a lot of side of people that maybe we see yeah. because we, we deal with people and where they live and their kids. So I think it's harder sometimes for real estate people to want to give back and help out poor or people that maybe are not as advantaged because we feel like we've been burned so many times. We feel like the lady, you know, or the man that said, God bless you, you know, and then before you know it too much, you, you know, they skipped out and trashed. But I sometimes, and I tell people this and I, I said, I'm not using this as an excuse, but I think real estate people would probably agree with me that we, sometimes we like to put our blinders on because we've been burned so many times by people. And, and, um, and probably if you look at, at the average career, we probably deal with people and their personal lives more than the average career does. Oh, and for sure. so, for sure. and Especially so if you're in residential. Exactly. And so I think we have to remind ourselves that there are good people out there who need help and we can't, we can't use 25 years of experience of getting, you know, uh, taken advantage of and or, you know, feeling bad. For, just, I don't know. So I, I guess I'm saying as I'm answering your question, I'm realizing that that really is a, it's a real issue with us. And I think that uh, I think that we do get up on our lives. We realize that, hey, we got to remove that part of you know our lives and realize that there are a lot of people out there that need help. And, and we can't use our past experience to prevent us from doing that. So. And everybody's situation is so different. And just because the one person or the 10 people or the hundred people that you've yeah. had experience with that have done that to you, doesn't mean that's, that's what everybody's like. And, and sure. so, and, and you know what, they did it once. It doesn't mean they're going to do it again. And here's the other thing is, so what, you yeah. know, so, so what? people, people are people They deserve, they deserve it. They deserve more. Um, they deserve us to treat them with respect. And so I get it. And I have had plenty of that same thoughts as, as you just mentioned. And, um, and sometimes it is hard because you just got burned by somebody and you're like, oh, I, 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 my guard is up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but you just, you have to be able to get through it, get over it and realize like, look, it doesn't just because somebody wronged you doesn't mean the next person is. And 
the next person to the next person. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. it can be tough, but yeah. Um, well, look, Brian, really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate the time. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. How can I've our listeners? Yeah. yeah. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, easiest is to email me. Uh, email is uh, Brian B R I A N at Estes E S T E S Group G R O U P dot net N E T. Probably the easiest way to get me. I um, I probably like everybody else. I probably monitor my email twenty hours a day. But, <laughs> but no, I look. I I love um, talking to people. I love talking about real estate uh, opportunities, and so. Uh, would would encourage anybody that just wants to you know ask a question or whatever reach out to me. I, I like making connections, and I and I believe the more connections you have, the more successful you're going to be. So so yeah, so love it. Love. Yeah. yeah, Brian. Again, really appreciate it. Um, and you have a fantastic rest of the day. You too, Todd. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. But your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.